reading from Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the sailing and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Doreen. Um, I love Christmas time. This is a wonderful time of year. It's a great opportunity for us to remind ourselves of some really important things. Uh, the, the arrival of Jesus, the, the birth of our Savior, is obviously one of the most important events of all of human history. Um, anything more important than that would also be related to Jesus. Maybe the death and resurrection of, of Jesus is more important, but, but nothing else really comes even close. And so um, it's, it's important for us as we're considering these events to have a little bit of context in order to see how just how important this is. And so um, I got to go hear um, Charles Grimm speak over at the mission um, here a couple weeks ago. And um, here's how he started off, and, and I think it's great. He said, you know, your Bible is divided into two parts. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that, that's a really good way to start. gives a little bit of framework. You have your Old Testament, everything before Jesus, and the New Testament, which is everything after Jesus. And so um, I want to provide a little bit of Old Testament setting. Now, um, setting's really important. Uh, if, if you're watching a movie, usually the first 30 minutes of the movie is just setting. It's not really telling you the story yet. It's just providing setting. You get to find out who the characters are, what the issues are, where they're at, all of these important things so that then they can tell the story and you get to see what happens, right? Um, setting is really important, and so for us to understand the significance of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, and everything that's happening there, we need some setting. So I want to start off with a little bit of setting. I want to provide that, and then we're going to look at Gabriel's announcement and then Mary's response. So setting, announcement, response. Um, so the first thing is we're going to look at some setting. Now, whittling this down, this is, this is the hard part. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I can tell you, like we, we could spend the whole morning just trying to give a survey of the Old Testament. But what I want to do is I want to give you four important facts that, that help us with the setting of what's happening here when Gabriel shows up so that we see when Gabriel arrives what a big deal this announcement is. So the first thing, setting, um, first fact is that God made a promise to King David, and that promise was about a thousand years earlier. And so if you were in the covenants class that we just went through, we talked all about these different covenants that God made. Um, one of them was with David. And I want to read from, actually from First Chronicles, what God said to David. So First Chronicles 17, verse 11, um, God tells David, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So a couple things I want to point out in that promise that God made to David is that this descendant of David, this son of David, would have an eternal throne. And so this was going to be someone who would have a throne that would last forever. And so what that seems to imply is that there's going to be this dynasty of kings that's going to come after David. One, one king after another, they're going to have this throne that lasts forever. Um, another thing that it says in here is God says... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Which seems to imply this really special relationship between God and this king from the line of David. So there's something unique happening there, something really special. Um, But it says it's not a promise for all of David's sons, right? He says, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I'll establish his kingdom. And so you have this promise And what this meant was a really bright hope for Israel, bright hope for their future. You know, they they look out, they, they, for a while, felt like they were basically invincible. Because you have this this king who has promised that he's going to have this throne that's, that's going to last forever. And then they had the temple and God's presence with them. And so they really felt like nothing could stop them. Even if they had enemy nations around them, God always came to their rescue. And so for a while, they felt like they were completely invincible. So that's the first fact. The second fact is that this dynasty of kings was not faithful to the Lord. And that's really the story of a lot of our Old Testament. It's kind of a tragedy as you go through the Old Testament because you find out that these kings who have this opportunity for this amazing relationship with the Lord end up not following the Lord. And so, you know, King David has a son, Solomon. Solomon starts out really well, but Solomon ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. So there's that, you know. One of the problems with that, you know, there's a few. One of the problems with having a thousand wives is that they led his heart astray, and he ended up worshiping false gods. You know, David's own son, he should know better. He's the one marked with, you know, Solomon's wisdom. And he has a thousand wives, and, and yeah, I don't know about that. But um, he ends up worshiping false gods. And then you have his son, Rehoboam, 
who is actually just a terrible king and splits the empire in half. And then you have this long line of kings that are, that are so many of them, just terrible kings. Um, Manasseh is one of the worst. And he reigns for 50 years, but during his time, he leads the nation to worship Baal and Asherah and Moloch. Um, he actually sacrifices one of his own sons to the god Moloch, the false god Moloch. And so you just have this train wreck of all these kings that follow. So, so our first fact is there's this amazing promise. You're going to have a son, an eternal throne for, the, for his kingdom. But then you have this second fact, it doesn't look good because all of these kings are terrible. And so you go along. And then the third fact that's really important, background data here, setting, is that God disciplined the nation of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. Um, the way he did this is the nation split, Israel gets taken away by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom gets taken captive by Babylon. Um, that was about 586 B.C., and it was about 400 years after this promise to David. And so they're stuck in captivity, they're there for about 70 years, and during that time there's no king from the line of David sitting on the throne. So then they get to go back to their own land, but there's still no king from the line of David sitting on the throne. And so for quite a while, they're struggling, you know, what does this mean? God made this promise to us, and yet we look around, and there's no king from David's line on the throne. Has God given up on us? And that brings us to the fourth thing, and that is that God keeps his promises. God reminded the nation over and over that he keeps his promises. And there's, there's a couple in particular that I want to read for you from Jeremiah. Um, and the promise was this, God's going to keep that promise he made about a king from the line of David. Um, he hasn't given up on that. So Jeremiah 23 um, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Um, something very similar we find in Jeremiah 33. Let me read, read there. Jeremiah 33, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will raise, cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute right, justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So I share all that because what you see is that there's this moment of anticipation, really more than a moment, it's like centuries of anticipation, where they're longing for God's fulfillment of these promises that there would be a king again. And that king meant a lot to them because they were under the rule of the Roman Empire, and before that, under the rule of the Greek Empire, and before that, under the rule of the Persian Empire. And so they're just waiting for God to fulfill his promises and raise up a king and cause them to dwell in safety and, and all of that. And so you have this, this anticipation um, of this king. And so the Messiah, which means anointed one, this is this, this person from the line of David who's going to come and who's going to make everything right. And so that's, that's what they're, they're looking forward to. 
And you can imagine, okay, so there's going to be this amazing king that's going to come. Is he going to come from a wealthy family? Is he going to be, is he going to show up with an army? Is he going to, is he going to be strong and good looking? Who's, who's this guy going to be? You know, and there's this, this anticipation. And um, what we find out, though, is, is no, he doesn't show up with an army and um, looking tough and rugged. Um, he actually shows up looking a lot like King David did. If you remember the story of David, um, David was a shepherd boy out in the hills. He's a nobody. Um, Samuel shows up to anoint this son of Jesse, and Jesse brings all his other sons before him, and they're, they're better looking and, and older and stronger. And then he, Samuel's like, do you have anybody else? <laughs> well, there's this kid out back. I mean, yeah. And they bring out David, and David becomes the king, right? David was almost passed over, right? Almost ignored. Um, and that's very similar to the circumstances we see here. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mary was from Nazareth, which is sort of like saying Mary was from Finley, right? Like, like, if you're local, you know where Finley is, right? But he has to actually say to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, because nobody knows where Nazareth is, right? Oh, Galilee, okay, I've heard of that. It's over, like, over there? Yeah, okay. So, you know, the natural response to, to Nazareth is, from, from where? Where is this place? It's up in the hills? Okay. And um, otherwise, nobody knows where, he, where he's talking about. And so, he also says that, you know, this, this angel, Gabriel, shows up to Mary. And, and we find out that Mary, you know, she's betrothed to be married, which in that culture usually happened um, right around age 13 or so. So imagine that, right? Abby, Abby would probably have kids by now, wherever Abby's sitting back there. Um, so, you know, 13 you'd be betrothed, and then about a year later the marriage would happen at age 14, you know, the, the mature age of 14. And so this was a very humble background. That's, that's what I want you to see, is this is a young girl, and she's from a town, kind of a nowhere town. And we don't really find out much about her, you know. She's, she's you know, from Nazareth, and, and she's betrothed, and her name's Mary. She's virgin, and that's what we find out about her. And so it, there's this, this great anticipation, but there's, there's really humble circumstances. And it's into that setting that Gabriel, the angel, shows up with this amazing announcement. And what we find out from Gabriel is that Mary's going to have a baby that is completely unique. This, this is an amazing moment. And really, there's three main things that I want to point out about Jesus from this. The first is that he is the son of a virgin. Okay, now, I, I grew up in church. I know many of you did. And I think um, we can easily hear virgin birth and think, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened, you know, that time. That's impossible. Can I just point that out? That's impossible. So listen to what he says. He says um, in, in verse 28 here and following, he's, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, this is very similar to back in Isaiah, um, where, we, where we hear these words. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is, this is an amazing miracle. Um, it only happens once in the Bible, so this is not a common thing. You know, there's, there's several times where God raises the dead, or God heals the sick, causes, causes a lame man to walk, or the blind to see. Those, those things happen several times. This one happens once. There's only one time that we get a virgin girl who becomes pregnant. Um, it's a clear act of God. This, this could not have happened otherwise, uh, obviously. And it's evidence of just how special this child is to be. If nothing else, if we get nothing else out of the virgin birth, it's that this son is unique. There's something amazing happening here. Um, the virgin birth is evidence of God's supernatural intervention in the world. Now, there was a huge debate about 100 years ago in the church. And the debate was um, whether or not the virgin birth actually happened. And the, the real question, you know, was, was, is this something that was, you know, later added in, you know, this was a later tradition added in, or did this actually happen? And it actually really just came down to this simple reality. People, people read this and said, that's impossible. And they're right. <laughs> it is impossible. That's, that's the whole point. Um, this is actually impossible without God acting in this moment, in this time. Um, it shows, the virgin birth shows that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It explains how Jesus could be without sin because he didn't inherit sin from his forefathers the way everybody else did. Um, and it's, it shows that the entire work of salvation, right from the very beginning all the way through, the whole work of salvation is from God. God took the initiative. It's God who saves. If we deny the virgin birth, which I think a lot of people might be prone to do, um, you end up denying the truthfulness of God's word. You have to, you have to say this didn't actually happen. Um, you end up with a Jesus who is just an ordinary human being um, who's incapable of saving us. And you end up with um, some nice moral teachings of Jesus. And that's about all. Uh, the virgin birth is, a, is an actual historical event. Right? That's, that's what we're saying, is that this actually happened. There was actually a woman who had not known a man, who became pregnant, much to her surprise. <laughs> and it would have been an absolutely amazing thing. You know, as you think about miracles, this miracle that God, Almighty God who created the universe, could enter into a human being, that's just staggering. Like, we ought to just be in wonder at that. And I think it's, it's easy for us if we've you know, been celebrating this year after year to lose the wonder of that, but it's incredible. So first thing, Jesus is the, the son of a virgin. Second thing, he is the son of David. And we saw a little bit of the significance of that. He's the one who is this expected king that's going to come and make everything right for Israel. He's going to restore their hope for a bright future. That's what, that's what you should hear when you hear that he's the son of David. 
So let me, let me read these verses again for us so they're fresh for us. And behold, verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will, he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He's going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High, which is reminiscent of that promise to David, right? I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son, right? You get to see that imagery again here. And, um, and we find out also that he is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. And so rather than this dynasty of unending kings, right, we have Jesus, who is the one descendant, who will reign forever, which implies he's going to live forever. And so Gabriel's actually giving us new information here, right? This is stuff that the, from the Old Testament they didn't know. Okay, so wait, Jesus is going to actually live forever, which means when Jesus dies on the cross, well, he's going to have to come back <laughs> because he's the king who's going to reign forever. The third thing that we find out is that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me, let me read for you verses 34 and 35. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? That's a good question. Verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Mary asks a, a legitimate question. It's a fair question. Any one of us would have probably asked the same question. How is this going to happen? Now, last week we looked at the story, a very similar story, by the way, of Gabriel coming to Zechariah and announcing that John is going to be born. And, and Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, happened to be older, up in years, and, and barren. How's that going to happen? And so Zechariah asked this question, how shall I know this? which seems to imply he's looking for a sign. Like, can, can you give me some proof? Mary's question's a little bit different. She's just asking for more explanation. It's not that she doubts. It's that she just wants a little bit of clarification. So you know that I, I don't actually know a man, right? <laughs> I don't have a husband yet. How's this going to happen? And so she's, she's understanding Gabriel to be saying, pretty soon, real quick here, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, I don't know how that's possible. And so his explanation gives us some really interesting things here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I want to look at a couple key words in there. Um, one of them is really interesting, the word overshadow. So the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow Mary. Now, what does that mean? Um, it's very similar to, to a few other instances in the Bible where the, the Spirit of God is overshadowing or, or hovering over. So the first one that comes to mind is back in Genesis, right? When the Holy Spirit hovers over the face of the deep, right? The Holy Spirit's presence is there right as he's about to be involved in the creation of the world. Um, it's the same word, this word overshadow, it's the same word in the original as um, the word used to describe the presence of the Lord covering over the tabernacle, right? So the tabernacle was like the, the temple that they were going through the desert with. And um, here in Exodus 40, it says this, the cloud 
covered the tent of meeting, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same word there, talking about overshadowing. Um, One other spot that's really similar too is um, what Jesus tells his disciples at the very end of of Luke's gospel. He says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed from power on high. So in every one of those instances, you have the Holy Spirit's presence and power at work. And so what you see is this amazing moment where the Holy Spirit is going to come upon Mary and the presence of the power of God is there. Um, And I just want to read how one scholar describes this. He says, The divine cloud that established his presence in a place, now does so in a person. The divine overshadowing of the earthly tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the living tabernacle, the incarnation. It's just beautiful imagery that that God's presence shows up and enters into, is, is there in Mary to conceive and bring forth this child who would be the Son of God. Um, The second thing I want to point out is this child was holy. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Um, This is unique. Because if you're a priest in Israel, um, you are supposed to consecrate yourself to the Lord. And that means a number of things. You know, you're you're supposed to, to wash your hands. You're supposed to not touch dead things. You're supposed to abstain from certain things. And through that process, you are set apart for the Lord. You are holy and able to serve in the temple. But there was a process. Um, John the Baptist, he is set apart, consecrated to the Lord. We talked about him last week. Set apart for God. That includes, for John, no strong drink and wine. Okay? And that's, that's required for him as part of his service to the Lord. He's, he's going to be set apart for God. Here's Jesus, who from birth is already holy. He doesn't need to be set apart. He doesn't need some external thing to make him holy. He is holy. He already is. And so how can this be? Well, it's because Jesus is the direct product of God's creative act here in this moment, this virgin conception. Jesus is holy because he is God. Right? That's what we're seeing here. And then the third thing is um, this, this phrase, he's the son of God. And so Jesus is son of a virgin, son of um, David, but also the son of God. Now, the Jewish people would not have known what to do with this phrase, that he's the son of God. Because to them, that sounds like he's God. Okay? So, So there's a phrase that shows up in Ezekiel a whole bunch of times, that Ezekiel was the son of man, which meant human. That's what it meant. He was human. Here, Jesus is Son of God, which means He is divine. And so, going back to that promise to David, you know, he will, I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. They would have understood that as something almost like a figure of speech. Right? Okay, okay so you're going to have a really close relationship with him. Right? What we find out through Luke's Gospel and through the whole New Testament is it's more than that. That Jesus is literally Son of God, in the sense that he is fully divine. And so this baby to be born is completely unique. 
He comes from this completely impossible, miraculous situation. He is the son of a virgin. He is fulfilling all the promises and expectations that he is to be this king, the Messiah, the son of David. And he is also the son of God in the fullest sense of what that could mean. Jesus is, as we read in Isaiah, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. It's the greatest miracle possible um, that Almighty God would take on human flesh. How is it possible? And that's what Gabriel concludes with here. He says, for nothing will be, possible, will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. So put yourself in Mary's shoes. How would you respond to this if you're Mary? You know, you're, she's, she's probably 13-ish, um, and she gets this amazing message from this angel that this is going to happen. Now, you can imagine it's going gonna, it's gonna to look bad when this 13-year-old girl is suddenly pregnant. Um, she's not married yet. That's scandalous. And you can imagine how hard it would be to accept this. Yeah, but y- you know that's impossible. That doesn't happen, right? And so you can imagine how difficult it would have been for Mary. But, man, look at her response. Um, verse 38 here. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Um, you know, up until this point, we don't know hardly anything about Mary. She's from this little town of Nazareth, betrothed to a man named Joseph. She's a virgin. That's all we really know. And then we find out this is an amazing woman of God. She is an amazing example of faith here in this moment. So she identifies herself as the servant of the Lord. That's cool, because that's that's what she's identifying. This is who I am, this is core identity. I am the servant of the Lord. And then she embraces God's plan for her life. Um, One one writer described this as um, the best definition of faith in the Bible, period. Um, the desire for God's word to become reality in our lives. Right? This is an amazing example of faith. Following God's plan, you know, sometimes hard, awkward. We, come to, we can easily come up with excuses. Uh, let me give you a, a few excuses that we could come up with. Um, if I live for God, it's going to be inconvenient. Um, going to interfere with all of my plans. Uh, If I live for God, people are going to think I'm strange. People are going to think that's weird somehow. Um, Or sometimes we say, I don't understand God's plans, and I think I know better. Right? Those are are things, and maybe you don't say it out loud. Of course, you're not going to say that out loud, but deep down, you're thinking, I don't like God's plan. I think my plan's better. Um, But here's what Mary says. She says, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Her response in the midst of this situation is, let it be to me according to your word. Which meant she was going to be pregnant out of wedlock. Um, she's pregnant. She's not married yet. It's going to be scandalous. It meant um, accepting God's plan when it doesn't seem to make sense. Um, ultimately, it meant letting God be God in her life. Now, here's how this all ties together. Jesus is completely unique. He's the son of a virgin. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He is the king. 
He's the coming king who's going to set everything right for Israel. He's the one who's going to reign on a throne over Israel forever. That's what is expected, right? This is the promise that's been there. It's, been, it's what they've been looking forward to. That's why we talked about the setting. That They've been looking forward to this king who's going to reign over them forever. He's going to rescue them from the surrounding nations. But what we find out later is he's going to rescue them from their deepest need, their biggest problem, which was their own sin. It's their own, own internal sin. And so what, what, as we look at this, man, I think we should look at this through the lens of what Mary says. Mary is willing to say, God gets to be king in my life. He gets to rule. I'm going to let him be on the throne. I am his servant, which servant is kind of a softened word. It, the, the word there is the same as the word for slave. It, this, this is the idea that I am a slave of God. I'm, gonna, I'm here to serve him. He's in charge. He's the master. I'm here to serve him. And so the real question I think that every one of us needs to ask, and this is really relevant to Christmas, is are we going to let him be king in our lives? I think it's really easy for us at Christmas time to think of Jesus as the little baby in the manger. And he's cute and cuddly and... and Everybody loves babies, right? How could you not like that, right? But Jesus comes, yes, as a baby in a manger, but he grows up and he is king. And so really the message of Christmas is all about the arrival of the king and whether or not we're going to embrace him as king in our own, life, our own lives. Um, so will you let Jesus be king in your life? And can we respond the way Mary did? Can we say, let it be to me according to your word? God, you're, you're the king, and whatever you say is what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to let him be king in my life. Um, let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father, I, I just thank you, Lord, for your good word. And God, I pray that if there is anything in our hearts, Lord, keeping us from worshiping you, not just as a baby in a manger, but as the king Lord, do a work in us, Lord. Bring us to a place where we can accept you as our king. Lord, may your spirit overshadow us, Lord. May your spirit be here with us, your presence, your power, working in us as you did in the disciples, Lord, empowering us to respond to you, Father, this morning. And Lord, we know that we can't do this on our own. Um, and that's why we need you as our Savior. And so, Father, I pray this morning that if there's anybody who has not accepted Christ as Savior and as King, Lord, that today would be the day that, they, that each one of us could respond to you in faith. And, Lord, may we look to Mary as our example. Lord, and, and what an amazing example of faith she is. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name.